Agent Desmond. I figure this whole office, furniture included, is worth $27,000. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is the In the Weeds section, where we talk about uh, sort of trivial details of Twin Peaks, characters, how much screen time they have, counting up the coffee and pine donuts motifs, and looking at the different locations featured. Uh, it's it's sort of a fun inside baseball aspect. Now, in this case, usually what I do with my how I structure these podcasts is this comes near the end of uh, of the episodes on a given episode. But uh, in this case, we're moving towards the sort of deeper, richer material as we go. So we're starting with the more trivial stuff. So uh, I'm going to set that up here and keep in mind that this will... Uh, incorporate the missing pieces as well we're going to move even though the missing pieces came out after twin peaks firewalk with me many years after we're going to move through that on our way to twin peaks so talk about that in a moment the top storyline category is no longer relevant in addition to its relation to the series this is a standalone film and obviously it is almost singularly focused on one story the crisis of laura palmer and everything else for the most part is related to that story We'll still organize scenes we are discussing by subplot to draw interesting connections to the series, but rather than gauge the obvious top storyline and runners-up, we're going to eventually return to an older category that we haven't had much need for in a while. We used to be uh, covering in every episode of Lost in Twin Peaks from the pilot through the uh, past the killer's reveal, I think to the point where Leland died. This was once the central question of Twin Peaks, who killed Laura Palmer? But now the emphasis is going to be on why was she killed? As the mystery parlor game of the series becomes a serious, existential, even spiritual inquiry into the nature of Lara as a character and Twin Peaks as a story. And before we get there, we do have a more straightforward procedural investigation that is full of questions which the film will pose and then answer itself. The central question of that investigation is, who killed Teresa Banks? Reversing the usual order of the podcast, both of those mystery questions and those investigation breakdowns will be reserved until after I discuss the Laura storylines in the film. And that itself will be reserved in another reversal until after we discuss the more peripheral subplots carried over from the series or introduced in the film itself. In fact, I'm going to move through the entire middle section of the Lost in Twin Peaks format almost entirely backwards, which seems appropriate both for a prequel and the tempo of the Red Room. First, the trivial and statistical attributes, coffee pie and donuts, other food, characters, and locations. Now, as I mentioned, missing pieces are part of this backwards movement. The way that I've arranged that, again, this episode, uh, Missing Pieces, was actually recorded initially for patrons, separately from my Firewalk With Me coverage, so I had to do some re-editing here. But I'm going to continue to incorporate it alongside Firewalk With Me when I discuss the mythology, and then I'm just going to focus on the narrative of the missing pieces on Saturday. And uh, from there, from that point on, uh, until we get to like archive readings of my own work, we're going to talk about just Firewalk with me next week. So all of the coverage of the story, Laura, the subplots, the mysteries, that will be exclusively Firewalk with me. And uh, even though that could be a little disorienting in the sense that usually people talk about Firewalk with me and then the missing pieces... I find Missing Pieces makes a good bridge thematically, narratively toward Firewalk with me, and then we can get to like the real heart of Twin Peaks. So that's how we're going to do this. Then, a breakdown of scenes moving from those side subplots to more crucial Laura-oriented content. Then, breaking down first the Teresa Banks investigation, and then the Laura Palmer investigation. 
to determine what, if anything, it all means. Let's start on the edge of the whirlpool and work our way to the center. So, first then, coffee, pie, and donuts. Uh, there's lots of coffee in this film. I was actually surprised by how much. I, I kind of remembered there's no coffee, pie, and donuts in Firewalk With Me as, as a kind of theme, but actually there's no pie or donuts and a lot of coffee, and I, I have to wonder if it's because coffee may be you know, the most uh, narcotic of those substances, as, as Sam Stanley reminds us. So maybe coffee felt like it had a home in Fire Walk With Me and those other uh, more delightful snacks did not. Uh, so first we see Gordon getting coffee from uh, the second woman uh, in his office in a, in a black mug, probably the one with the FBI logo. Everyone seems to drink from that if they're in the FBI. And when they're at the sheriff's station in Deer Meadow, uh, Deputy Cliff Howard says, why don't you get some coffee? Go ahead. It was fresh about two days ago and breaks out into laughter. And uh, after Chet Desmond grabs his nose and tweaks it, he turns to the secretary and says, you can get that fresh cup of coffee right about now. We see a red kettle on a morgue shelf. Uh, they're pouring pot of coffee into white cups at Hap's Diner. And of course, that's when uh, Sam Stanley says caffeine's a drug when Irene says she doesn't take drugs. Uh, there's a young woman and an older man drinking coffee at the table. And this is the moment around which Chet turns to Sam and he looks he sees the cup of coffee he sees sam's that sam has a watch on with the the hand that he's holding the coffee and he kind of smirks a little and he says what time is it and he gets sam to pull up his watch instinctively and spill coffee on himself and then uh the carl rod at the trailer park tells them i'm gonna make myself a cup of good morning america y'all want some he brings them back a brown yellow and green mug and they're all drinking and Chet says, you weren't kidding, man. This stuff's got the sting of the 48-hour blend. And uh, Carl's <laughs> response is, that's the best damn coffee you're going to get anywhere, buddy. And uh, Sam Stanley says, we sure do need a good wake-me-up, don't we, Agent Desmond? And then he repeats the line, interestingly enough. So then we're back in uh, the FBI headquarters, in uh, in this case in Philadelphia. Uh, not I think before Gordon was in Oregon, now he's in Philadelphia. And we see the blue mug with the FBI logo on Gordon's desk. Uh, same mug later on Cooper's desk as he talks to Albert. Uh, there may be coffee in the Meals on Wheels that Laura carries out. I'm not sure. There were like some, 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 um, can't remember if it was like cups or something that, that looked like it might be coffee. But Shelly, when she carries out the tray, has a thermos and some red cups that are pretty likely coffee, I would say. And that's mostly it for the Laura scenes. All the coffee is in Deer Meadow and the FBI, uh, other than that one Meals on Wheels moment. And then we do see uh, one other moment, which is the morning uh, after Laura discovers uh, who Bob is. She's uh, sitting at the table and there's coffee at everyone's place at the breakfast table with bowls of sugar and there's like a fat little pot at the table. It's got a weird design on it. It's like decorated with these little rectangular columns all around it, lining it. And we're going to talk a lot more about this later when we get to the wash your hands scene. But there are a lot of lines, like horizontal and vertical kind of grid-like lines in this uh, dining room space. And it seems significant to me that this coffee pot as small a detail as it is, has those lines in it as well. So even in this trivial section, there is a tie to this broader theme. As far as uh, bonus food or drink, other other types of food, there's, a, I would say, probably more drink, uh, alcohol, 
specifically than food. So again, with this theme of these uh, addictive narcotic, um, you know, vice substances, even if coffee is the most mild of them. So to start with, we have uh, Chet and Sam talking about what they're going to do. They're looking at the Teresa uh, report that she worked at uh, Hap's Diner, and Chet says it's a good place to eat when we're through. They get out at 3.30 in the morning, which means it was an 11-hour autopsy. I don't know how long those things usually go. That seems like quite a bit, and uh, I guess they were pretty thorough. And Sam says, where are we going to sleep? And Chet says, we're going to eat. So they go to Hap's. And at Hap's Diner, Sam says, Irene, would like to order some please, some some food, please. And she says, would you like to hear our specials? Long pause. We don't have any. Great line. There is a creamed corn in the room above the convenience store, but we'll discuss that mostly for its metaphy- uh, can't speak, metaphysical significance when we get to the mythology. Uh, with uh, at the Hayward house where uh, Laura and Donna are talking, there's it looks like grapes and cashews on the table for them to snack on. I've seen a still image that was on the uh, Blu-ray set from deleted footage showing Eileen bringing them something on a tray. I don't know if they're muffins or what. Harold is drinking red wine out of a glass when Laura arrives. Uh, there's two covered plates and styrofoam cups on Laura's tray that she carries out when she's doing Meals on Wheels. We see the signs outside the Double R Diner, which say Lumberjack Pancake Stack, uh, $2.95, and then the Double R. Two eggs, two slices of bacon, two sausage links, two slices of toast, $2. So I like that little bit of detail there. Uh, on Shelly's tray, there's some sort of a flat bowl covered by tin foil. We don't really get to see any of the food in the Meals on Wheels. It's all kind of covered up. There's nothing appetizing there. It's just sort of perfunctory. Uh, at the Palmer House, there's wine in a glass decanter and an ornate glass that uh, Leland is drinking at the table before Laura arrives. Uh, also, there are biscuits or rolls in the center of the table, and Sarah places a bowl of casserole down. But we don't actually see them eat dinner there, which is interesting. I'll kind of come back to that point. Like we don't see them actually eating a meal in this moment. It's a dinner scene without dinner in a sense. Later we see Laura drinking a whiskey from a glass from the liquor table as Donna enters. Uh, Buck brings Laura a clear drink with a little red straw, so probably some kind of mixed drink at uh, the Roadhouse. There's many drinks in the Roadhouse and Partyland, too many to counter catalog. When they get to the Partyland, Laura says, don't expect a turkey dog here. Another great line. And chug-a-lug Donna that when she's uh, trying to get her to drink the uh, drink that uh, Buck has spiked with drugs. And also, I actually forgot to write this down, but I should have mentioned when we're talking about food, uh, Laura has the infamous line, which we can only sort of start to make sense of in The Missing Pieces, so I won't get into it here, where she tells Jacques, I am the muffin. And of course, his response is, what a muffin you got. And, you know, continuing the kind of gross food uh, analogies. He later calls her and Donna his high school sandwich. Let's put some meat inside as he's like hugging. So everything, you know, this is one of those instances in Twin Peaks that happens sometimes where food becomes kind of gross. Like it, it's not like a warm bonding communal thing. It's it's uh, much more negatively connotated than that. We see this, I think, too, in the season two premiere where uh, there's like the gross hospital food and everything's kind of exaggerated. The log lady's spitting her gum in the diner. So every now and then Lynch, who who loves to build up food, I think at times also can kind of go in the other direction with it. So the next morning, well, we see the empty beer bottles all over the uh, party land floor at the end of that sequence. 
And then when Leland picks up uh, Laura, he says, we're late to meet mom for breakfast. Again, a meal, a Palmer family meal that we don't see. Uh, Gerard references corn when he's screaming at Leland and Laura in the traffic. Uh, there's a Coca-Cola vending machine at the motel where Leland is going to rendezvous with, uh, with Teresa. We see Laura drinking out of a paper bag uh, with Bobby. Not sure what she's drinking, but, you know, some, something that she's paper bagging. And then we have the scene where uh, Leland is drugging Sarah, and she's kind of, kind of seems to know what's going on and goes along with it, and it's in the form of milk. And I feel like in this moment, just with the kind of iconographic charge that it has, milk becomes one of the more important foods or drinks in uh, uh, food, you know, types of food or drinks in. Uh, in Twin Peaks in general, really, in this moment. It, it reminds and I think that's not just because of Twin Peaks. Milk often has that sort of charge significance. Um, I think of Bigger Than Life, where this father who's kind of out of his mind on the drug cortisone is forcing his son to drink milk, and and it's just this, like, traumatic... It's actually kind of like the wash-your-hands sequence. Um, this is a film I discussed recently in my Twin Peaks cinema. I believe I mentioned that moment. It would be kind of hard to miss when drawing analogies between... Twin Peaks and, and that film, but also the film, um, is it, what what is the one I'm thinking of, where Cary Grant is uh, bringing up some milk, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, he's bringing milk up to um, the, to, I, oh, who is it, Olivia Davilin's sister, <laughs> having a brain freeze here, the one, Joan Fontaine, who was in Rebecca as well. Uh, I, I keep wanting to say sabotage, but that's not, that's a, that's a different movie. Uh, but in this movie, he's he's like a husband who's suspected of wanting to murder his wife, and she's not feeling well, and he's bringing the milk up the stairs, and it's this haunting shot of him. They even had like a little light in or behind the milk to kind of make it glow as he's carrying it up the stairs. So this moment really makes me think of that as well, this ominous treatment of this wholesome, supposedly wholesome substance. Um, that's been done quite a bit throughout uh, classic films. So again, here an example of Lynch using food or drink in a sort of a subversive way. And then we have the first actual meal at the Palmer house and it's Laura's soggy cereal. So the milk once again, interestingly, and then everything else looks so appetizing and nice. You've got orange juice, scrambled eggs, toast. It's like, this is an actual meal they're sitting down to and seemingly enjoying at least Leland is. Uh, but despite the constant references throughout the film to this, you know, let's get ready for dinner, uh, we got to go meet mom for breakfast, etc. This is the only meal that we see. And again, I, I just, I find that significant, this, how this film is subverting these trademarks, these these icons of home and comfort, and turning them on their head. And in this moment, the food itself seems, other than that sort of soggy cereal, seems kind of nice and pleasant and it's at the worst, one of the worst moments in the movie. And that that really has a kind of a power to it, I think. In fact, this is the only meal, I think, in the entire film. Chet and Sam, we don't see them eating at the diner. Um, the Meals on Wheels are never delivered. Uh, everybody's always drinking and smoking and, and, uh, and so forth. And snorting cocaine almost deserves its own category uh, in this film. But we never get somebody like sitting down to a nice meal except the the only two exceptions I can think of um 
I suppose are, in, in fact, do we even, I'm trying to think now, do we even see somebody like not just sitting down to a meal, but like actually physically eating? We see, and not drinking. And um, hmm, this is an interesting thought. So I'm kind of thinking this out in real time. I think the only times are the little man eating Garmin Bosia in the end, uh, Leland eating at this breakfast, and uh, I think that, yeah, that might be it for the whole film. Kind of interesting. Make of that what you will. And so uh, we see a tray of liquor on top of the chest in the living room. Again, the, the alcohol being much more prominent than food in this film. Uh, when Laura comes home from uh, from Bobby's and passes Sarah on her way to bed. And then up in her room, she's drinking small bottles of Jack Daniels in the bedroom alongside pills, a pack of cigarettes, and Coke. We see, uh, okay, this is the one other meal, I suppose you could say, in the film. The children eating food in the angel picture. And then, of course, the angel disappears from that. We see uh, all of them drinking beer at Jacques' cabin. That's that's really the end of like the food and drink in this film. So... That was interesting. You know, I sort of cataloged all this and little thoughts emerged as I went along, but really only like reading through it do I see some of these broader significances or connections. So, yeah. And then finally, the smoking. There's a lot of smoking in the film, um, but not a lot of smoke. Like, it's not glamorous smoking really almost at any point in the movie. Maybe when Laura kind of is like sitting, lying down on the bed with her, with her, uh, diary and smoking and bobbing her head. That's kind of like a cool moment that, you know, people have drawn connections between that and uh, Quentin Tarantino's poster for Pulp Fiction, that sort of pose. But really, for the most part, it's, it's uh, again, kind of like a gross habit as it's presented. So we have Irene's cigarette with heavy ash at Hap's Diner. Uh, and when he's telling her caffeine's a drug, Sam tells her as well, nicotine's a drug. We'd see Teresa holding a cigarette in the photo where she's sitting in the kind of leafy green looking at the camera and uh, you see the ring on her finger. Lynch took this photo in L.A. with uh, Pamela Gidley, the actress, before, uh, I think when he was casting her maybe, like soon after he cast her and before they were going to shoot up in Washington, which is kind of cool. She talked about this in a great interview she did before she passed away, unfortunately. Um, I've talked about this character and actress before. It's just fascinating to me. Like, I had no idea, but she lived... um, several towns over from me in a place I've worked a lot and, and done uh, different things in uh, Seabrook, New Hampshire. It was a big surprise. Like this was right around, you know, early and in, in kind of getting back into firewalk with me. She passed away and was kind of stunned to find that out. But there's a great interview with her with Brad Dukes, which was down for a while. And I think it was restored. I'll link that in the show notes because uh, that's worth listening to in full. She's just really interesting person interesting experiences on this film so anyways back to cigarettes we have carl smoking on uh the porch uh as he's as he's standing outside the crime scene and it's in his mouth as he's carrying the cups he got these three cups and a cigarette perched in his mouth kind of great image later on at uh school we have bobby pulling out a pack and puffing on his cigarette and starting to dance backwards after uh you know he has that confrontation with laura laura is smoking as she grabs the uh, diary and uh, places the ashtray on the bed as we've talked about already there's an ashtray with several cigarettes on the dinner table obviously belonging to sarah this is one of the few moments in the movie where she's not smoking 
but there's still cigarettes present around her. Uh, there's many cigarettes in the ashtray upstairs as she smokes in front of the mirror that evening as uh, Leland is crying on the bed. Shelly is smoking a cigarette. There's a lighter in a pack on a table near her, and Bobby is also smoking a cigarette as he's on the in the phone booth talking to uh, Jacques. There's two ashtrays piled up with cigarettes in front of Laura's portrait when Donna arrives uh, in the evening to see what Laura's up to. And this uh, this gets us the immortal line, if I had a nickel for every cigarette your mom smoked, I'd be dead. Then uh, Laura lights her cigarette as Donna is standing behind her. And uh, there's obviously a lot of smoking in the roadhouse. Uh, I think some in party land as well. Laura is smoking throughout the whole uh, party land sequence. Um, she lights up in the roadhouse. She's smoking while she talks to Buck and uh, I think Tam or whatever his name is. And then uh, she's continuing, like as she's dancing and she's stripping down and she's having all of these experiences at party land. It's like, at least for the first part of it, she's still hanging on to that cigarette. There's cigarette butts all over the floor in party land. When we're panning across the empty beer bottles, there's cigarette butts there too. And curiously, she's smoking the morning after party land, like a morning after cigarette uh, when she's sitting there on the couch with Donna talking to her about what happened. And it looks like a cigarette is still going or is just stubbed out in an ashtray. Um, the smoke is rising when Leland arrives. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't seem to notice, you know, Laura's still 17. She's not supposed to be smoking. But then of course, you know, they have so many secrets that that's just kind of the most minor of them, I suppose. It also adds to the visual suggestion of something repressed that's smoldering this smoke kind of rising up in the middle of this nice pleasantly lit little scene of of donna and laura embracing which then triggers his uh, flashback of ronette and laura bobby has a cigarette over his ear in school when they're talking about the drug deal and he's smoking as they wait for cliff in the woods uh, we see smoke from an off-screen cigarette uh, later on in the in the sequence where sarah is sitting staring at the mirror when Leland brings her the milk. So again there, even when we don't see her smoking, the smoke of cigarettes are right near her. And we see her smoking at breakfast. It's like sort of a strange sequence. She's got food in front of her, but she's sitting there smoking. She puts out the cigarette only when Laura gets up from the table, but then Leland goes after her. She's got nothing to do, so she reaches after some hesitation for another pack, lights it up, and the camera moves over the table towards her as, as she puffs on it. And finally, when we see her for the last time, when she's reading the newspaper and Laura's going to bed, again, holding the cigarette with her with her head hand on her head, the kind of an awkward position. She really, I was going to say almost never is without one, but she's never not within the presence of it. It's kind of an amazing consistency there, just as a character trait, the, the chain smoking, just the constant, always, always, having and needing them as a, as a token of anxiety. So there we really have it with, with alcohol, cigarettes, and coffee. Just clearly this movie is most interested in consumption of substances that are not necessarily the best for you. We see Laura smoking in her room while putting on lingerie. We probably really should have had a separate category for cocaine as well, since there's so much snorting in this movie. Uh, she's trying to talk on the phone with her mouth, uh, with with the cigarette in her mouth, and she seemed to stub it out before, but now it's back in there. It's it's kind of a nice little, uh, almost semi comical in this in this dark moment, uh, touch there. And she's passing a joint around the cabin with Leo and Jacques and Renette, which makes me wonder if that's the only non cigarette smoking we see in this movie because there's no cigars, no pipes, 
uh, just cigarettes, cigarettes, cigarettes everywhere. It's funny that this is the movie where Lynch started smoking again. I, I, uh, I think he tried to quit maybe one or two more times, but this was the great return, and he's almost never really let up since. It, it's like he was something in him was trying to resist smoking again, the way he presents it in his film. But it, it, uh, this, I think this is when it began again, if I'm not mistaken. There is no coffee pine donuts uh, to fill this section in in the missing pieces. My guess is that might be the least you ever see coffee pine donuts in uh, any of Twin in any chapter of Twin Peaks. Just nothing here, at least that I noticed. Correct me if I'm wrong. Send in some feedback, and I'll I'll include it. We see the food on the Meals on Wheels tray, and we see the Palmer dinner table, and we see uh, creamed corn uh, at the very end on that spoon. That, uh, you know, it's just the, the electricity crackling in the background and the spoon floating there. And, of course, the tray or the plate in the conven- a room above the convenience store. This is also probably one of the least food-heavy chapters of Twin Peaks that I can think of. Again, unless I'm missing something there, too. The characters introduced in this movie, not included, um, not including the ones who are in, um, who are introduced in the missing pieces. We have the angels, Teresa Banks as an on-screen figure. We've heard her name mentioned before. Carl, Carl Rod, the trailer park owner, played by Harry Dean Stanton. FBI agent, uh, Philip Jeffries, of course, played by David Bowie. Chet Desmond, played by another uh, singer. I don't usually mention the actors, but it's just kind of notable, all these famous actors and singers and stuff in this film. You know, Chet Desmond, played by Chris Isaac, whose Wicked Games song, uh, Lynch kind of made famous because it was not it was it was it didn't really take off much in '89 and then he included an instrumental of it in Wild at Heart and that really uh, helped Isaac's career in that single and uh, and kind of went from there and also Sam Stanley played by uh, Kiefer Sutherland another famous actor um, we hear about Sam in the pilot actually. Uh, when Cooper is doing the uh, investigation of Laura Palmer's fingernails, pulls out the little letter. He's he's speaking to Diane on the tape recorder. He says, give this to Albert, not Sam. Albert's a little more on the ball. So kind of insulting Sam right away there. And here we get to see maybe why. He's certainly neurotic in a sense. And uh, then we also are introduced to the jumping man, the woodsman, and the electrician. One more note about actors. I think this will be the last one, but... Uh, one of the woodsmen is played by uh, Jürgen Prochnow, who is a you know world famous actor, German actor who was in Dune, played a major role. I think the Duke of Atreides in uh, in Lynch's version of Dune in '84. He's in this movie for about three seconds. He gets top billing in the credits, alphabetical with everybody else, opening credits, no lines, maybe like five seconds of screen time, one close up with a giant beard it's just so funny that lynch gets people to do this you know you have william h macy doing something similar mary steenburgen doing something similar she has a little more screen time but in inland empire and uh just other films too like i think there's some in maholland drive lost highway lost highway richard Pryor's bear it's just funny how he gets these people to come in um, certainly Twin Peaks The Return has examples of this and just pop on screen for like a few a few seconds, basically. I mean, David Bowie essentially does that, although his character is of more significance than the Jurgen Prochnow one. Okay, moving through the rest, we have The Monkey, Deputy Cliff Howard, Sheriff Cable, Lil the Dancer, Irene the Waitress, The Wounded Lady, Tommy and Buck, Jack at, Jack at Haps, um, whose uh, name tag says 
It's supposed to say, say hello to Jack, and he crossed the hello out and says goodbye. The school bus squad, all of the people involved with that bizarre crime scene, the Deer Meadow secretary, the couple at Hap's diner, the crime van driver, uh, the woman looking for hot water. I love that. Hot water, Carl, the woman. She was actually like just a person walking around town, and Lynch was driving along with his assistant director and said, wait, go get her number. Like they stopped the car, and he just liked the look of her. He went, got the number, and then she shows up in that scene at the trailer park. He wrote it in. Uh, also, uh, you know, at this point, we're going down the chain. FBI security guard Toad, the double R cook, which is confusing because there was a Toad character who was uh, present on the uh, TV series who was um, like the big burly guy with the beard who was always at the diner. And for some reason, they named the cook Toad in the credits of this film. You barely see him. He shows up... A, tiny bit more in the deleted scenes but um yeah he's there the power and the glory rock group playing at party land uh, mose motors mechanic the guy who says you'll burn out your engine interestingly that guy is the son of um someone else oh i think it's um michael parks i think he's michael parks's son michael parks who plays jean renault on the series so another pair of fathers and sons there's several of those actors on the show also, Dan and Gavin O'Hurley, uh, who play Andrew Packard and the Canadian Mountie. That's another example. And I think there's some others as well. Obviously, Mark Frost's dad is in it. But, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, two secretaries walking away from Gordon. There's the random workman at Haps. And then there's an old man crossing the intersection with a walker with someone helping him. I think we got pretty much everyone who is any sort of even featured extra in Firewalk with me in there. This is also our first appearance of Moira Kelly as Donna, which is our only major recasting in Twin Peaks up to this point. There are other recastings, though. Johnny Horn is one you may not notice, but the guy who plays him in the pilot, totally different actor than the one who plays him uh, at Laura's funeral and other episodes of Twin Peaks. And also Renette's parents are recast from uh, the f the pilot to episode one that certainly nobody would notice that unless you look at the actors names but so it's happened before but never on this scale the idea of like bringing in one of the major characters in Twin Peaks a different actor it's like actually because the character is so important that they have to do this they couldn't write around to the way they could write out Audrey or Ben or others who didn't show up to be in Firewalk with me and had smaller parts planned for them also actually the girl who plays Renette in the hospital bed in episode one when we're when we're meeting her parents uh up close that is a different actress than phoebe augustine which i've always found interesting but i talked about that in uh, other episodes this idea that you know they're shooting in la now for the series that actress who played Renette probably won't come back we'll just hire somebody to sort of lie with their head turned in a bed and that's Renette now moving on and yet they did bring Renette back uh, in the season two, and then now in the film, I think she becomes one of the most crucial characters in a very, in a way that often gets missed. And I don't even know to what extent it's you know quote unquote intentional. It's allowed by the film in an interesting way, which I think makes it feel complete. So that's a little sneak peek of something we'll talk about. If you've seen my Twin Peaks videos, heard some of my commentary, you know what I'm referring to. But we'll get into that when we get into the Laura Palmer mystery. The characters introduced in The Missing Pieces that have never been introduced before, including in Firewalk with me, are the concierge at the Buenos Aires Hotel that Jeffries is staying at, the bellboy and the maid at that hotel. Of course, the bellboy has the immortal line, Oh, Mr. Jeffries, 
Oh, the shit that come out of my ass. Nice addition to the uh, Twin Peaks canon. And the maid is crawling on the floor, freaking out. We meet the trucker who picks up Laura and uh, basically trades sex for drugs on their way to the uh, the party land. And finally, the last uh, character introduced by the missing pieces, who's not introduced anywhere else, is Dennis. Dennis is the owner, apparently, of the bar that's in front of Partyland, so I assume the owner of Partyland as well. Uh, he appears to be Native American, and uh, when Laura and uh, the the truckers or the loggers or whatever they are walk in, uh, he recognizes them. Or he recognizes Laura, sorry. He says, and she says, hey, Dennis, and he said, you know, sends her to the back or just kind of nods her to go back to the back. So really, as you can see from that list, there's... No major, not even really any significant minor characters introduced by the missing pieces. Uh, most of the characters who were introduced by Firewalk with me made it into the finished film. Moving on with characters, these are the first interactions we see between Albert and Gordon, which is very surprising. We would think of these as characters we'd seen together before, but uh, we really didn't on the show at all. They did have a relationship in the sense that they talked about each other, uh, when separately visiting Twin Peaks. Um, interestingly, in this film, they don't even really interact that much. Like, they're in the same place as uh, David Bowie enters the FBI headquarters, uh, and they kind of, and I think Gordon says, Albert, meet the long-lost Philip Jeffries, or something like that. Or, or maybe he just says that to Cooper. So, yeah, I'm not even sure how much they refer to each other here, but uh, it's it's funny how close they seem, even though at this point they they haven't really interacted at all. And then, of course, this is the first interaction between Lara and pretty much everyone in the film in direct terms. They've interacted in the sense of, like, talked about her, had memories, uh, her presence in the show. You know, I've always sort of uh, cataloged Lara's appearances on the show, not so much through her actual physical appearance, but how, you know, if, if she is, like, the center of a scene and so forth like that. But in the sense of actually like the actress Shirley being there interacting with these characters, the only people in the film that we've seen do that with her before this film are James, who we saw in the flashback in episode one. Um, easy to forget that gauzy flashback where she says, he says, your skin's so smooth, and she snaps the little heart necklace. It's funny to think of that as like the first glimpse of Firewalk with me. It's so different in tone. Um, also seen her interact with Donna in the pilot through that uh, home video of the picnic. We've seen her interact with the little man in the episode two dream and the finale trip into the black lodge. We've seen her interact with Bob in episode eight, the season two premiere where he kills her in that flashback of Renette. And we've seen her interact with Cooper uh, again in that dream and lodge sequence in episode two in the finale. Other than that though, it's, it's new with everyone new with Leland's new. I mean, it's an amazing thing about this movie really um, and we don't get to see more of it, which is in some ways a pity. In some ways, it makes sense because this is so her story. The Tremonts, Bobby, Sarah, Norma, Gerard, Singer, uh, Shelley, Doc, Leo, Harold, Eileen, Major, um, Betty, Annie, the Log Lady, Jacoby, Mike. Also, these are the first interactions between Jacques and Bobby, Donna, Ren and Renette. Um, first time we've seen him interact with the, any of those three characters. And uh, it's the first time we've seen Renette interact with Leo and Leland. And it's the first time we've seen uh, Gerard and the, uh, the little man, the arm, as we learn he's called in this moment in this film, uh, when we see those two, the one-armed man and the little man, 
interacting with Leland. I believe that is a first as well. The first interactions that we see in the missing pieces, Josie with Del Mibler, who uh, had to, you know, he's not one of the official characters in my character series, whose time and ranking I, I tracked and all that because he was only in a couple scenes, but uh, might as well throw him in here, an integral part of the missing pieces. Also, really, I guess, kind of the first interaction between Cooper and Diane, but of course we don't see Diane, we don't hear her, we just see Cooper talking to her in the doorway. So I guess you could put that there. The rank of the characters by screen time. Uh, I've done this. All of this is taken from my character study. So in that character, you know, to prepare for that character study when I was calculating this stuff, I combined Firewalk with me and the missing pieces for all characters. So I don't have a separate listing, unfortunately, for the missing pieces. I'm not going to go back and do one just for this purpose. I can now give you the collective rankings for characters who appear in both Firewalk and me and the missing pieces. Number 10 is Jacques with about nine minutes. Two days midnight at the sound of sawing Number nine is James with about 10 minutes. You always hurt the ones you love. Number eight is Sarah with about 12 minutes. What is it, Leland? I think a lot of that probably comes from the missing pieces. Number seven is Bobby with 17 minutes. Are you telling me there's no Santa Claus? Number six is the Spirits with 20 minutes. Do you know who I am? All different forms that the Spirits take. Number five is Cooper with about 20 minutes. Don't take the ring, Laura. Number four is Leland with about 30 minutes. Who am I? And number three is Donna with about 30 minutes. If I had a nickel for every cigarette your mom smoked, I'd be dead. Donna and Leland are almost tied in this, depending how you can, you know, if you want to go through with a stopwatch or something, you might come up with different results. But based on the scenes they're in where they're interacting with characters, they're really almost equal. Number two is Chet and Sam with about 33 minutes. What time is it, Stanley? Chet has 31 of those minutes, and Sam has 24. And number one, no surprise, is Laura with 115 minutes. Life is full of mysteries, Donna. Almost two hours of screen time uh, collectively when you combine Firewalk With Me and the missing pieces together. This is her film. No other, no character has more screen time in any unit of Twin Peaks. To be fair, there's no unit of Twin Peaks this long. Uh, almost four hours when you combine Firewalk With Me and the missing pieces. Uh, Cooper actually... Um, is not, you know, he's barely scraping out the top five in this, which is not surprising given that this is the Laura film. I'd also note of those characters I just listed, uh, the only one who appears almost not at all in The Missing Pieces specifically is James. All of his 10 minutes are in Firewalk with me. You see a few seconds of him pulling up on his bike, I believe, in The Missing Pieces that you also see in the film. As far as uh, supporting cast goes, this is the first time that the Chet and Sam team top the supporting cast, obviously, since they're introduced in this film. This is Cooper's 31st, Lars and Donna's 12th, Leland's 5th, The Spirit's 4th, and the Chet Sam team's first entry with roughly five minutes per program hour. Since the combined feature and deleted scenes are about three times the length of a normal episode, I think it probably makes more sense to uh, talk about characters who are on screen for more than 20 minutes rather than characters who are on screen for more than five. Harry, Pete, Audrey, Dell, Wyndham, and Annie all dropped off since the previous episode. They had a top screen time in uh, the finale. Uh, Audrey and Wyndham have disappeared altogether, of course, from, from Firewalk with me. The other characters do show up uh, when you take into account the missing pieces, at least. In terms of successive episodes with prominent screen time, who's on a hot streak? Well, this is the Spirit's second entry in a row, 
with about five minutes per program hour. So again, the 20. Uh, This episode ends Harry's recent run of 10 episodes in a row with over five minutes, as well as Annie's run of five and Audrey's run of three in a row. So a lot of characters were racking up that uh, screen time at the end of the series. And now they are much diminished, if not absent altogether. Cooper, of course, uh, has had, he's been above the threshold in every Twin Peaks entry so far. And he is here as well, even though he plays a more minor part in the film and uh, the deleted scenes, he still has, uh, you know, when you break it down by by episode length, if you split it up, he'd, he'd have an average of about five minutes. So collectively, the top 10 characters in Twin Peaks so far are number one, Cooper, number two is Harry, three is Laura, four is Donna, Ben is fifth, so that's the top five, and then it's six Audrey, seven Bobby, eight James, nine Leland, and ten Andy. So several characters who make only a brief appearance or no appearance at all in the Firewalk with me, uh, missing pieces, are still way up in that top ten just based on the series, obviously. The film and deleted scenes dramatically affect the overall screen time of two of those characters in particular, Laura and Leland. Laura, who slipped behind Donna and Ben's overall relevance near the tail end of the second season, now bounces back in a big way, racing well over an hour past Donna and Ben in terms of screen time to re-enter the top three characters. She's now the third character to hit four hours overall in all of Twin Peaks. Leland, meanwhile, passes four characters to appear once again in the top ten, second time that he's been in there. Uh, He was in there for a few episodes, and then he went away. His presence during the reveal arc, and especially his last episode where he dies, were so strong that he stayed in that top 10 uh, really into like mid to late season two, but uh, eventually others displaced him. Andy falls a spot as a result of this, but uh, mostly Hawk is the one who pays for Leland's rise. Uh, He's out of the top 10 now, which ends a 27-episode streak of Hawk being a top 10 character. So there are your baseball standings for Twin Peaks. Make of that what you will. Two other characters who see a bounce from this are Donna and Bobby. Both of them reach new milestones. Donna is the fourth three-hour character, and Bobby is the seventh two-hour character. And Donna also rises at Ben's expense, since he's not in the film. Audrey, the other absent horn, stays put in the center of this top 10, although Bobby is now much closer to catching up. Josie makes for around 20 characters who now have over an hour of screen time. So she's now the 20th character in uh, in this rankings. Um, So we're looking below the top 10. Uh, The Spirits and Sarah hit 50 minutes. Gordon, Gerard, and Diane uh, hit 20 minutes. If you count, you know, direct address to Diane, either in the form of a tape or standing in the other room silently. Jacques, Renette, and the singer hit 15 minutes, and Betty reaches 10 minutes of screen time total in all of Twin Peaks. And as for the specific spirits, if we break it down, Bob has now 15 minutes of screen time, the Tremonts have five, and Mike in his pure spirit form, so not when he's, basically when he's inside the Red Room, not when he's uh, in the human world in the form of Philip Gerard, even though he looks the same in the Red Room. He's got about a minute of screen time. Uh, interesting that Bob only has 15 minutes, but it makes sense. You know, I, I think actually the majority of that might even be from this film. Um, well, I guess the reveal episode as well, but he, we we hardly ever see him on the show, even despite his massive presence in you know, our minds. Who has disappeared from the show or the story now that it includes a film? Uh, To make sure it's not just a temporary blip, which, as noted, there are a lot of characters who just drop off for this film, but they haven't been absent for a consistent run, let's limit ourselves to characters whose last appearance was in episode 26. 
back when Gordon kissed Shelley and Wyndham murdered the heavy metal dude after explaining the Lodge mythology to him. Funny to think we're that close to that tone of Twin Peaks uh, from here. The only notable absence is the cloaked spirit. Last seen in several montages, at least one of them linked to Major Briggs's vision alongside fire and owls. So that figure with the cowl, the hood um, that we see in a sort of a montage. Ben is the only, is the uh, most prominent character who's absent from this entry of Twin Peaks, just this entry, followed by Audrey and Catherine. So those are the characters with the most screen time that we might expect to see, but we don't. Hank is the most prominent character of all, who's been absent for four or more episodes. Who's returning to Twin Peaks, though, after four or more episodes of absence? We have quite a few people here. James Hurley is back, five episodes after his last appearance in episode 25, when we heard him speak as Donna read his postcard, so we heard him in voiceover. Josie Packard is back five episodes after her last appearance, also in episode 25, when a drugged Harry saw her in a vision when Jones is about to strangle him. Albert Rosenfield is back seven episodes after his last appearance in episode 23, when he was proving that Josie shot Cooper. Philip Gerard is back 14 episodes after his last appearance in episode 16, when he was on the verge of death in the Great Northern, advising Cooper while possessed by the spirit of Mike. The Roadhouse Singer is back 16 episodes after her last appearance in episode 14, when she was performing The World Spins as the room reeled following Maddie's murder. The White Horse is back 16 episodes after its last appearance in episode 14. That was when it materialized in the Palmer living room before a drugged Sarah passed out on the floor. 21 episodes after their last appearance in episode 9, the Tremond grandmother and grandson are back. Uh, We last saw them when Donna delivered them Meals on Wheels. That's, in fact, the only time we ever saw them until now. So Lynch digging back deep into Twin Peaks lore for that one. Jacques Renault is back 22 episodes after his last appearance in the season two premiere, episode eight. That was when he was wheeled away in a large black body bag, uh, which later turned out to be, quote unquote, smiling when it was hanging from the uh, wall. So we don't actually see Jacques in that episode. We don't see his face, but we see his body inside the body bag or we see the body bag anyways. Waldo the Bird is back. Uh, Last appearance for him was episode six. 24 episodes ago. That was when his cage was swinging back and forth with the blood dripping on the donuts uh, as the lawman listened to his final words on a tape recorder. Here we see him flying, flitting about that cage in Jacques' cabin. The Spirit Mike is back 28 episodes after his last appearance in episode 2, again, separating him out from Philip Gerard, since uh, when, when Gerard's in the real world, I consider him that character who's hosting a spirit. When we see him in the Red Room, I say, okay, that's just Mike. Uh, the last time we saw him, as Mike was episode two when appearing in a non-earthly dream realm and thus in not in need of his human host while still taking his form, he recited the Fire Walk With Me poem to Cooper. And finally, the character whose name you probably least expected to hear as a returning character, all the way back from the pilot, 30 episodes after her last appearance, is Margaret Honeycutt, the homeroom teacher who we last saw receiving the devastating news of Laura's death from state troopers. She's just a blurred figure here, but it is the same actress. It's supposed to be the same teacher that we kind of see in the background of that homeroom scene. So interesting that all these characters are returning, but the further back we go, the closer we actually are to Firewalk With Me itself, since it's a prequel. Now we come to locations, and I'm first going to deal with the ones in the missing pieces just briefly, and then we're going to talk in more detail about the locations featured in Firewalk With Me and how they're featured there. Here's a list of the locations in uh, the missing pieces. And as always, this is going to start with the ones that are... It, they're they're going to be uh, mentioned in the order that they appear 
in the saga of Twin Peaks. So first we got the Blue Pine Lodge, the Sheriff's Station. We have the Palmer House. We have the Briggs House. In the high school, we have the title sequence of Laura's portrait and then uh, Laura teasing Bobby in the hallway about killing somebody. The Great Northern Hotel. We have a couple flashback scenes, close-ups of Leland at his desk. And then finally, we have Evil Cooper, the doppelganger, in his room. Double R Diner, the Johnson House, Packard Sawmill, Calhoun Memorial Hospital, the Hayward House, the Roadhouse. We have a flashback where Teresa is trying to figure out who Leland is, so she calls Jacques. We have some scenes in the woods. The title sequence uh, takes place a little bit there. Ed and Norma in their car pulled off the road somewhere. Bobby finding out his coke is baby laxatives. Jacoby's apartment with its Hawaiian motif. The Timber Falls Motel. Presumably that's where the uh, one-armed man, Philip Gerard, is with his candles that he's lighting or unlighting. The Log Lady's Cabin out in the woods. Glastonbury Grove, we get near the end. The Some Months Later title is imposed over it. Here are the returning locations that we haven't seen for at least four more episodes that are now back in the deleted scenes. Calhoun Memorial Hospital is back 21 entries after its last appearance. I'm kind of shocked it's been that long, but yeah, it's basically... So the episode where Renette is... uh, where, where they find the letter under her fingernail that was back in episode uh, 10 and we haven't seen that location once since then that's kind of amazing to me they use it so much near the end of season one and early season two but then it's gone jacoby's office we see for the first time in 24 entries so last time we saw that was in the season one finale where he's watching the tape and running out of there and Donna and James sneak in the log ladies cabin. We haven't seen in 26 entries. We don't go inside of course, but we do see her out there holding her log, listening to the woods. Uh, that's the location that we last saw in episode five when they go out into the woods. Uh, as I said, 26 entries ago, long time. Uh, when, when the sheriff people go out in the woods and I guess that's the only time we see it on the show. And then finally, the Timber Falls Motel we haven't seen for 27 entries. Last time we saw that was when they busted in to find uh, the one-armed man there. And I suppose that's what we're seeing in um, Firewalk with me, or rather the missing pieces where he's on the floor extinguishing the candles. Well, lighting them, actually, because the film is played backwards. I suppose it could be another motel because I think there is a scene where Hawk comes in and is like, yeah, I couldn't find him at this place. Now I found him at another, but... I like to think of it as the good old Timber Falls Motel that we're seeing again. There's new locations in The Missing Pieces. One of them, I think, is the neighborhood sidewalk. I don't think there's any scenes on the series where we see characters kind of hanging out on a sidewalk somewhere. The rural highway, same thing. I don't, can't think of, uh, there probably are some scenes on the on the series that would qualify for that. Uh, certainly, James biking his way down to Evelyn Marsh, but that's kind of in another town. In The Missing Pieces, we have Laura and the trucker. You know, he pulls up alongside the woods. She comes out and she gets in his truck there and then driving to Partyland as well. And then, of course, Partyland itself, a Methodist church that we see for some reason for about five seconds before we cut away. We have Red Diamond City, which is in Firewalk With Me. That's where the Red Diamond City Motel is located in Deer Meadow, we have the sheriff's station slash morgue. At Hap's Diner, we have the arrival establishing shot, great shot. And the Fat Trout Trailer Park, where we have a couple, uh, well, no, we have just one interior, I would say, where Teresa is lying in bed talking to Leland. I assume that's in her trailer and not at a motel somewhere. 
Next location, a little further afield, or actually maybe closer, because depending where Deer Meadow is, is Spokane. That's right. We have a scene in the Twin Peaks universe that takes place in Spokane. Spokane, Spokane, call it what you will. What is that scene, you're asking? That scene is Sam Stanley's apartment. Then we go further afield to the East Coast, to Philadelphia, FBI headquarters. In Buenos Aires, we have the hotel. And then we have the spirit world, of course. We have the Red Room. And then the other uh, supernatural location in this is above the convenience store. But we also see a location that's like a hallway with this weird wallpaper which people have identified as being the same as one-eyed jacks that might just be a sake of uh you know pardon the pun but convenience where they had that on set uh because you know they were filming this on the sound stage where they filmed the series and now for the locations in the feature film version of firewalk with me we have the blue pine lodge where a laura is unwrapped in that final close-up from the pilot but also floating near the log at dawn nothing in the sheriff's station maybe the first time we've in, in any Twin Peaks entry that we have had no scenes at the sheriff's station. I'd be interested to go back and look at that. It's such a crucial hub for the show and it's so significant that we don't see it here. For the Palmer House, we're back after 13 entries. Uh, last time we saw this space was in the beginning of episode 17 when Cooper is comforting uh, Sarah and tells her, you know, Leland didn't, your husband didn't do these things. It was this man, Bob, and all of that. Uh, that was the last time we visited. The last thing we saw there was the fan whirring ominously. And sure enough, here we are back, and it's not at all like Cooper said. We have different spaces within this house. We have Laura's bedroom, where she finds the missing pages, uh, later finds Bob there hiding behind the dresser, where Leland comes to say goodnight in the evening after he's uh, yelled at her at the dinner table. Uh, we see her hanging a door picture there and then having uh, her dream with uh, Annie in the spaces and all of that, uh, taking down the picture the following morning. There are the rings flashback here where she, she she sees the ring on different people and she realizes what's going on with that. See her looking as her, at her diary, uh, her public diary where the coke is getting low and then doing coke in bed uh, the night the night that like Bob is going to come to her. And then we have the Bob and Leland reveal. And the next morning, the sequence where she tells Bob or no, she tells Leland significantly stay away from me. And then that night, the phone call with James as she's getting ready for her night out. And then the angels disappear. So that may be the most prominent location in the film. I think it has to be really terms of certainly in terms of number of scenes and maybe in terms of screen time as well. Um, we just spend so much time there and so many different significant events happen in this quiet space. I mean, I called it the scene of the crime in my Journey Through Twin Peaks videos. And I think, you know, that that really is what it is. And it's this kind of mysterious, ominous place in the uh, series that we don't spend much time in. Uh, there is the moment where like Sarah glimpses Bob sort of hiding behind Laura's bed. That's more something we see in the alternate European version of the, the pilot ending, a whole other story there. Um, but we get a little glimpse of it in episode one where it's just a close-up of Bob behind something that is supposed to be Laura's bed. I think the only time we're ever in her room in the whole series is that first scene where Sarah just briefly glances over the room looking for her there. And then the scene where Leland is sitting on the bed holding like a pillow as a hawk looks through and finds her camera and that's it. And then it's like left, you know, there's all these furtive glances up the stairs, the fan going, the bedroom light 
in the background. We know something awful happened there eventually. We kind of realize that, but we don't spend any time there. And here in this movie, significantly, we do. It's just like with Laura. It's like the, the, what was hidden on the show is now totally there for us to like live in and dwell in and try to understand. The stairway is also a crucial space. We see Laura mesmerized under the fan there, um, obviously running down it earlier when she finds her diary pages are missing when she's going to Harold. Uh, we see her walking upstairs to find Bob eventually in her room. And then when she's in her dream, she looks into the hallway and sees that the fan is off. And then we see Leland turning the fan on when he's going to go into her room that night uh, to when he's abusing her. For the front yard of the Palmer house, we have uh, Leland exiting when Laura realizes that he was the one in her room when she saw Bob. We have the scene between Laura and James there. We rides up on his motorcycle and Leland stands up on the top of the steps. And then uh, when she's leaving for her last day of school, she comes down the stairs and walks out of the yard onto the sidewalk, sobbing. We see her uh, fleeing the house at night on James's motorcycle. And that's the last time we have any, you know, we spend any time in this front yard. It's it's a place of, I suppose, kind of escape and, and almost like revelation in a way this yard because this is where she leaves the door the the picture of the door that she then goes and gets and brings up to her uh, to her room the dining room we have the wash your hands scene and the breakfast the tears at breakfast uh, for the bathroom we have a shot of Laura crying and she washes her hands her parents room we see Leland crying we have Sarah drinking the milk and then Sarah having the vision of the white horse and then in the living room where, of course, Maddie was murdered on the TV show. Laura walks towards the stairs. Uh, Donna comes uh, to find Laura there, ready to go out, where she's drinking the night before she goes out to the club. Leland is pacing there when he remembers killing Teresa. And then uh, Laura passes through there saying goodnight to Sarah uh, when she comes home. And then also, finally, I think that's the space that Leland is in, where he's watching out the window as Laura flees on the motorcycle with James. In the Briggs house, we return after 11 entries. The last time we saw this space was in episode 19 when uh, Major Briggs came back in the pilot uniform and Betty embraced him and Bobby was uh, coming home from the Great Northern talking to his mom in the dark. Now we only visit the basement of this place where uh, Laura and Bobby have their final moments together. In the high school, we have scenes set in the stairway where Laura and James meet up. Uh, it's the first moment in the film that's inside a familiar location about 40 minutes in. That's interesting. I forgot about that. I wrote that down when I took these notes initially, uh, th that until that point in the film, um, I think it's 35 minutes in maybe, but we have not been to any familiar places at all. I'm trying to think if that's really the case. Yeah, because the FBI is in Philadelphia. We have all the stuff in Deer Meadow. We have the Oregon and all of that. And then even when Laura is walking to school, I suppose the outside of the Hayward place, but being actually inside somewhere, um, this is the first time that we're like we're like back. Um, I guess, yeah, the shot of, again, the sign, uh, the Twin Peaks sign in the mountains is familiar, but this is the first time we're like inside, interior. Uh, for the high school bathroom, we have Laura doing cocaine. The hall near the locker room, we have this, uh, this sequence with Laura and James where she's in the towel. Then in the lobby, we have Bobby kissing the, the uh, glass partition with Laura's picture behind it. In the schoolyard, we have the confrontation between Bobby and Laura. In the hallway, 
the nearby a set of lockers. Uh, the Bobby and Laura are talking about their upcoming drug deal. And then finally in the homeroom, Laura's breakdown where everything is getting blurry and bleary and no one's around her. And this pairs up nicely with the pilot sequence in the homeroom where they find out Laura's been killed. Nothing at the Great Northern. Another big at location absence here. Double R Diner. We do get the scene of the Meals on Wheels uh, and the Tremonts bringing the picture. So a little inside, a little outside. Johnson House we haven't seen for nine entries. The last time was, I believe, beginning of episode 21 where Leo tries to kill Shelly and... Uh, and Bobby saves her, and then, and well, they both save her because I think she stabs Leo in the uh, leg, and he runs off into the woods, and that's it. Goodbye to the Johnson house, except now we're back there as uh, Shelly and Leo are, or Leo is cleaning and tries to force Shelly to clean. Packard Sawmill, we haven't seen for 22 entries. Wow. So this, last time we saw this, I think, was on the news in the season two premiere where it was all burnt down, but now it's still going. We get a brief glimpse of it as uh, Jacques' voice on the soundtrack says, near the sound of sawing wood, which is where they're meeting to do the drug deal. Nothing? I said nothing for Renette's bridge, but there is a bridge in the background of Sparkwood in 21 um, where uh, Lara is leaving James at that intersection with the, with the stoplight, another location we have here. And there's that bridge in the background. Now, I think there's a few bridges like that in this area, so I'm not, I, I kind of don't think it's Renette's bridge, but it's interesting that we see a bridge that looks like that. Uh, at this moment when Laura is leaving James, kind of circular thing there, as then Renette coming out of that bridge or a bridge like it will be kind of the end of this whole night. Nothing for Big Ed's gas farm and house. Uh, 21 entries after its last appearance, we see the train car, Laura's death scene there. Now that's interesting. 21. So when when did we see it? I would have thought it was... Uh, 22 entries what, since since the um, season two premiere when we have that flashback of Laura being killed in the uh, in the train car with uh, you know through Renette's flashback um, that may just be an error but that's interesting I wonder if there is a moment where we see it in the subsequent episode Sparkwood in 21 is a location that is probably introduced in the pilot because we see the stoplight hanging there uh, we can assume it's that intersection we're never really told, but in Firewalk with me, we see it knowing that that's the stoplight in the intersection where James uh, pauses and then Laura hops off the bike and runs away. So we see this this location at least, you know, if, if nothing else for the first time in Firewalk with me and possibly at least alluded to in so many earlier episodes when we have those shots of the stoplight swinging there. For the Hayward house, we have Donna leaving in the morning, and then inside when they talk about the angels lying on their backs on the couches, uh, Laura coming to the door sobbing as, as Donna embraces her, and then the morning after the party lands where they're sitting on the couch and Leland comes to pick her up. In the roadhouse, we have uh, Jacques at the bar during the day, nice and quiet. Bobby's calling him up. Then we have the log lady and Laura outside of the roadhouse where she gives her she delivers that speech to her and then uh, meeting the johns inside of the roadhouse when uh, julie cruz is singing in the woods we have the drug deal also the last time that james and donna talk uh and then uh, J uh laura meeting up with uh, all of the others for the the party in the cabin and then the racing towards the train car and finally uh, leland placing the body 
in a, a river somewhere running through the woods there. So those are all pilot locations. And that's really what dominates this film, um, other than the totally new places, is those places introduced in the pilot. In between that, uh, there aren't that many locations introduced on the series that we get to visit here. One exception, of course, is the Red Room, which technically is in the European alternate ending of the pilot. So even that you could trace creatively back to the pilot. But we see the curtains during the Jeffries montage, and uh, then we have Laura's Dream set inside the Red Room. We have the Garmin, Garmin Bosia trade at the end, where... Uh, the, the arm gets the Garmin Bosier from Bob as Leland floats up uh, up high above the floor. And then finally, Laura and the Angel. And of course, these could be different spaces within the Red Room space. And Lynch likes to call it the Red Room rather than the Lodge or the Black Lodge. There is a moment where Annie uh, mentions the Lodge, but otherwise, uh, I think even in the script, it's mostly called the Red Room. So that tends to be what I call it here. But, you know, you could look at it as the Black Lodge as well or maybe White Lodge in certain parts. As far as other Season 1 locations, uh, there's nothing... Uh, I mean, most of these locations we haven't seen in a while. Uh, we did see Easter Park a few episodes ago, but there's nothing for that here. Jacques' Cabin does return, though, after 25 entries. The last time we saw this space was in Episode 5, where they all go into the woods, the sheriff's team, and they find his empty cabin with the record skipping and Waldo the bird, and the, there's like a wind sound in the in the walls. And I love that sequence, and it's even more powerful in a way. After seeing Firewalk, means seeing just the torment and agony that happened in this cabin, and now in the show it's so quiet, it's intriguing, it's like this little mystery space, but knowing all the trauma that's haunting that, I think that to me gets to the essence of this strange thread that connects the series and film, like, uh, as I called it in one of my videos, um, basically like a secret passage between two very different worlds. And I think that location sort of signifies that probably better than anything. And, and the scenes that we get at Jock's cabin in this film are their last party together. Then we have Leo fleeing and Leland taking the girls from there. And also uh, Gerard, Philip Gerard, the one-armed man, arriving there at one point before he runs off after them. So... It's this sort of jumping off point for the last horrible stretch of her life and her death. For season two locations, um, again, not that many that we're revisiting here, but from episode nine, we do have Harold's house uh, that was introduced in episode nine, and we haven't seen it since episode uh, 14 where so 16 entries ago where um they find him hanging there after he's killed himself in the greenhouse we have the one scene where laura visits him here it is a different set people have noticed from the uh, show but it has enough of the flavor of it that you may not notice i suppose and uh this is actually the first time in a while we haven't had any scenes at Wyndham's cabin because in the finale um was it was it was his cabin in the finale actually no Yes, it is, because we see Leo there with the string in his mouth and the tarantulas over his head, but obviously nothing for Wyndham's cabin here. That part of the story is way off in the uh, periphery. And uh, also uh, the airfield that we were introduced recently, I should mention that because it was not that long ago that we saw that space. Um, it's, the third episode, or it's the third entry of nothing for that. We haven't seen that since... Uh, Episode 27, I guess, when John Justice Wheeler takes off. Another character who is just so 
out in the weeds compared to now what we're into with Firewalk with me. Uh, Glastonbury Grove, we do have a sequence there where Leland enters after setting Laura's body off in the river. And then we have a whole bunch of new locations. The Fat Trout Trailer Park. Uh, at the Chalfont Trailer, we have the opening sequence, interestingly enough, and uh, Teresa's murder flashback. So this is the space where Chet goes to get the ring, this this trailer that later we find out um, Carl tells uh, Cooper, oh yeah, there was a family here, grandmother and grandson or something. They lived here, Chalfonts, etc. That space, if you actually look at the script and you look at like the decoration, that's the place where Teresa is killed. She's not killed in her own trailer. Very interesting detail there. And Chet seems to know that, something we're not even really informed of in the audience. We really have to trace it out through like production details. Uh, I don't think that part was intended, but certainly through if we look at the moment where she's killed. It's just an interesting decision on Lynch's part to have it happen there. Carl's trailer and the open spaces around we have um, where they wake the scene where they wake him up, uh, the scene where uh, Chet is returning to the park and trying to figure out what's going on and uh, and Cooper's uh, follow-up scene where he's trying to figure out what happened to Chet. And then we have Teresa's trailer, which is where they're checking for clues and the ice pack lady comes and, and visits. So, of course, again, this is where Teresa lived, but apparently not where she died. Wind River, we have Teresa's body, uh, Cooper predicting the second killing, the Oregon FBI office where Gordon calls in the beginning, the Fargo field, Fargo, North Dakota, where there's the school bus arrests going on, the Oregon rural airport, Gordon's briefing, all these spaces across three or four states that are really actually all just right around the Snoqualmie North Bend area that they shot this stuff. The road to Deer Meadow where Chet and Sam are chatting about Lil and uh, the Deer Meadow Sheriff Station. We have the lobby scene where they're... Uh, Chet gets trying to get to the sheriff and then, uh, you know, later comes back to demand Teresa's body. We have the sheriff's office where he goes to get the files from the sheriff, forces his way in. Uh, the morgue where they perform the autopsy. And then outside of the sheriff's station or outside of the morgue and all of that, they're planning for to go to the diner in the middle of the night. And then later on, packing up Teresa's body in the FBI van to be taken away. Hap's diner, we have the little room off to the side where Jack is directing them, telling them where to go and what to say, and then them, the detectives questioning Irene at the counter. The Philadelphia FBI headquarters, uh, we have Gordon's office in the hallways and surveillance room near that, where Cooper is telling uh, his dream to Gordon, then looking at the surveillance camera as Jeffries pops in, and then later them checking the surveillance screen, so that whole area. And then I wrote down Albert's office, but they might actually all kind of share a big office together. I'm not sure because the space is so big. Like it's a, it's an oddly set up set, which was, I think, shot at a hotel somewhere. And I guess this would be like a conference space that they could get in Seattle for uh, David Bowie to come in and do his bit part. And so we have the scene where Cooper and Albert are talking at their desks. There's the room above a convenience store, which has been mentioned on the series, but never seen until now where the spirits are meeting and later on, we see the Tremont in the hallway in Laura's dream. I think it, the wallpaper makes it seem like that might be a similar space. I think it might be different wallpaper in these two areas. But it's such a cool space for Lynch to finally visualize, like something out of a dark painting, this idea that was only wispily suggested on the show. Um, you almost wonder in that scene in episode five where they're at an actual convenience store and they're looking and... Uh, 
Cooper says, uh, hey, that's a room above a convenience store. And they're looking up at it like if they went up there, if they would find this place. Nice little side tangent to explore. The neighborhood sidewalks where Laura and Donna walk to school. Mike and Bobby tease them. And then we see Laura's last walk to school in a very different mood on the last day. And then, of course, party land, the long night out at this nightclub. I always thought this was like the same spaces. Like this was like the back room of the roadhouse. Um, I'll read some interesting quotes on that later from others who thought the same thing. And I liked that idea. It reminded me of other Lynch locations, um, which I guess I'll mention here because I don't think I... I don't think I quoted my pieces where I've talked about this before in, in the archive section, but you know, the, this is it, a nightclub, or not nightclub, but like the Ben's apartment in uh, Blue Velvet where they go and it's like they're they're outside of this bar and there's like a neon sign, it's this dark bar and Frank played by Dennis Hopper is like, come on, let's go in, dragging Kyle McLaughlin inside. And then like when they enter, they're in this like well-lit little apartment with like a couch and some big ladies sitting on the couch with a mannequin or something. And just music playing faintly in the background as a bunch of like middle-aged beatniks kind of roam around surly and drunk. And it's like, this is the bar, like somebody's apartment. <laughs> what? But as it turns out, they actually cut a scene where they go through the bar up to the room above it. And so I was kind of, always kind of disappointed by that. Like, oh, I liked the idea that like the bar was just a room. And so I liked the idea that that the party land was the back room of the roadhouse. They're two totally different locations, but I like the way they're cut together here. And one last note about that idea of like a house or a residence doubling as some kind of public space. The sheriff sequence in Deer Meadow was shot in a house. And I love that. It's got that like sort of home office feel where maybe like a chiropractor, somebody just like sort of set up shop in a house and like put a desk you know, in the middle of the living room. I love that idea. It's like kids playing house kind of thing with a sheriff's station. So all of that kind of going about this. Okay, on to Red Diamond City Motel. This is the spot where uh, we have the flashback of Laura and Renette, and then we see Leland and Teresa's meeting there where they're they're in bed together, and then the aborted rendezvous where he's coming to hook up with her and her friends, and it turns out it's Laura and Renette, and he freaks out and walks off and all of that. And then finally, last new location introduced in the film is the intersection near Moe's Motors, where Philip Gerard yells at um, the Leland and Laura, and then as they pull off in the Moe's Motors uh, mechanic shop, Laura confronts Leland there, and they sit in the car and stew. And uh, the one location that has disappeared, been gone for four or more episodes, so significantly enough that it's established a kind of pattern of absence, is Owl Cave, which we last saw in episode 26, when the uh, sheriff's crew went and found Wyndham's footprints there. Interesting, though, that the symbol from Owl Cave does appear in this film. Okay, that was much more on locations than I thought, but uh, it inspired many reflections that I thought were worthwhile, so hopefully you felt so as well. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow, and this will include missing pieces, um, it won't be like interwoven. I'm going to talk about the mythology of Firewalk with me. And then at the end of the podcast, I'm going to do a section just on what's in missing pieces, but they'll be in the same episode together. So please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. See you tomorrow. Uh, I Garmin Bowser. Yeah.